Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves. Feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hello, everyone. This is Sean and Eric, and we are the host of the Strange Matters podcast. At Strange Matters, we discuss anything just outside the norm, ranging from the bizarre and unexplained to the supernatural and paranormal and everything in between. At Strange Matters, we cover topics like true crime, unsolved mysteries, urban legends, conspiracy theories, and unexplained paranormal events. If this sounds like your type of show, come check us out at our website, strangematterspodcast.com, or find us on iTunes or other podcast apps. We hope to have you join us in our discussions of anything and everything strange and bizarre. In the meantime, enjoy listening to our fellow Darknets podcast. Take care, everybody. Greetings, comrades! In this episode, we will continue on our Stalin series discussing the period from his first arrest to the revolution of 1905. And we shall be using our vast supply of literature, mind you, as we have acquired tons since the last episode, thanks to everyone who recommended books, by the way. Uh, we have acquired a lot of new stuff, and we shall be dealing with a brand new segment at the end of the show. Uh, we have acquired so much of Stalin's own writings that you'll be... Plenty surprised and, uh, I, I hope, impressed when we shall be starting to do our new <clears throat> Ask Uncle Joe segment. Because, you know, by this point I think that it makes sense not only to speak just about Stalin, but let Stalin speak for himself. At any rate, let's get on with the show, and I hope you'll enjoy this episode. So, last time we ended up with Stalin getting arrested in Batumi in April 1902, during the meeting of the local party leaders. Obviously, now we should look into his prison activities. Firstly, I do have to mention that prisons at the time actually seem, well, tame and peaceful and quite nice places to be in, well, at least by comparison to what we will, what we will see later during Stalin's own rule. <laughs> you see, while in arrested in prison in Batumi, for this, for this next year, he will be sending letters to his comrades outside, he'll be getting replies, organizing strikes in, in the city, and basically running a by-mail revolutionary business. And, you know, of course, of course, he'll get also busy converting his prison mate to the communist ideology. All in a day's work. And this whole situation reached its peak in March of 1903. This is when the Caucasus meetings of the revolutionary groups happened, and Stalin, while still in the Batumi prison, managed to get elected to the Central Committee of the newly founded Caucasus Soviet Committee, which would then organize, try to organize all the revolutionary activities in the region. The authorities were a bit stunned by all of the situation, but they responded, and in April 19, 1903, they moved him far away to another prison in the Kutaisk region. 
But such tiny things can't stop the great leader. You see, already in the 27th of July of 1903, Cobb organizes a riot of the prisoners of his new Kutaisk facility. He, it's like he, he arrived there at, at late April, and on 27th of July, he's already running riots in his new, new prison facility. Amazing. He presented the following demands to the prison administration. <clears throat> Put wooden planks for sleeping in the prison. As before that, the prisoners had to sleep on the concrete floor. Allow the prisoners to have access to sauna twice per month. Because, as per every Soviet person ever, saunas are extremely important to us. And punish the prison guards who were excessively harsh or rude towards the prisoners. And, well, Stalin and his followers at this point demanded a bit more humane treatment in general. Which I find ridiculously ironic later on. Now, after announcing their demands, they, they read them aloud in the prison yard. They beat up and tied the guards... And then, the prisoners started kicking and punching and breaking down the prison's gates. These gates, however, were reinforced with metal bars, so although the Stalin-led riot didn't bring them down, they caused a huge ruckus and people report trembling of the whole facility from all the situation. Now, this was something new for the Kutaisk region. This prison got surrounded by army units, the local governor arrived, the local attorney general arrived, and the local chief of police arrived as well, uh, bringing with him even more police units. But this, this will now actually show kind of this, this attitude of the Tsarist uh, era prison regime, because I, I suppose they really aren't competent enough of running a totalitarian dictatorship, obviously. You see, after a while, talks started going on. For some reason, <laughs> after after all the blood that I have seen in these series, that someone is actually talking with the inmates and, and, and giving them something seems kind of weird. But yeah, talk started going on, and in the end, surprisingly enough, most of these demands were granted. Uh, however, however, the leaders of these riots got punished, and most of them ended up incarcerated or given longer sentences. How, in case of Stalin, well, Koba was charismatic really charismatic. So his uh, punishment was being sent right back to Batumi. Because obviously, sending the local revolutionary leader right back to where he can run things easily through mail is obviously the greatest and best idea ever. So already in autumn 1903, Stalin is back in Batumi. Guess what he does there? Why, he organizes another prison riot, of course. This goes down in quite similar vein as the one in Kutaisk. And guess what? The demands of humane treatment of prisoners and better sleeping conditions and everything like that were met once again. I mean, this guy by now has, from prison, organized, or managed to get himself into positions of power, runs an illegal, illegal web of uh, underground printing presses, he has organized two riots and hasn't been executed for that. The demands of these riots were met, and this is just the beginning of Stalin's career. The balls on this guy, the bravado, it's, it's insane. But anyway, any rate, even though they have to give in to the demands, they still don't do anything that terrible with Stalin for a while, but, you know, after a bit, after a bit the authorities finally decide that, you know, enough's enough. Just, just, you had your two tries, Comrade Stalin. They are going to exile him. So, in mid-November, straight from the mess hall, in summer clothing, with riding boots on his feet and wearing a shirt with short sleeves, Stalin is grabbed by the cops and taken away. And this time, this time, to the eastern Siberia, where he would arrive in the 27th of November to the Novaya Uda village of the Balagan district of the Irkutsk governorship. A little bit about these exiles. They aren't nowhere near gulags by this point. Usually, there is only just some, some very few bored policemen over there for the whole village, and the nature, surrounding nature and the cold and the remoteness itself is basically serving as a prevention mechanism. See, prisoners were free to walk around, they, they managed to hang out with the local people, they managed to, to get into affairs with them, they, they basically debated their own Marxist philosophy among each other, and just 
hung around and they did some jobs to survive, but that's about it. The only thing that the prisoners were required to do were just, they were required to live in these designated areas. And they had to sign a paper that they haven't just gone away. And they just got to visit the local police station now and then. And that was about it, because it's Siberia and it's Russia and it's huge. And it's terrible. But, but... Do you think Stalin cares about such issues, such as being in Siberia? You see, his father-in-law, Sergei Aluliev, will write in his memoirs about the great leader that uh, Stalin's first escape attempt happened just two days later, on the 29th of November. That was unsuccessful. His second attempt of escape happened on the 6th of December. That also was unsuccessful, but gave, Sal gave Stalin some slack, really. It's really, really hard to rile up supporters for a massive revolution in a small village in the middle of nowhere, literally in Siberia, and he didn't even have Telnet connection. City just had more oomph at this time, and his Katorga mates just weren't as interested in the workers' revolution. They were just too busy actually working for survival and just hanging out in the middle of nowhere. Because obviously they had free sauna access, if you think about it. What's more funny is that his third escape attempt, also, also done in December, succeeded. Yes, for the third time. In, in the span of single month, Stalin attempts escaping. It succeeded, but it succeeded sort of. You see, Stalin escapes successfully, because by this point, not like, it's not like anyone's actually watching him. Stalin just escapes, but he comes back after that one. Cause he escapes in mid-December, and comes back to Nova Uda in late December. Because his equipment was poor, he hadn't had, he hadn't stashed any, any materials with him. He was literally alone in the vast Siberian lands with hundreds of kilometers between him and the closest other civilized location. See, the weirdest part is because this is, this is how escape attempts went back in the day. When you get tired of living in your, I don't know, small vacation in the Siberian lands, you just decided, ah, you know what? I'm just gonna go, go through Taiga to the nearest nearest train station. The problem is nearest train station is a bit far away, and you need to have some preparation for that. So Stalin learned about this situation now. <clears throat> but you know, as he returns back to Novaya Uda, not all was terrible. As here, as he's returning, a certain letter is awaiting him at this point. An important letter. From no other than our good old friend from previous series, Vladimir Ilyich Lenin himself. In memory of this event, Stalin would later write in his own memoirs, <clears throat> quote, First time I met Lenin in 1903. Of course, this meeting wasn't in person, but in written form, as he sent a letter to me. But it left a strong impression in me, which didn't leave me during my whole work time in the party. I was in Siberia back then, in exile. Lenin used to write comparatively short letters back then, but they gave me a strong impression. They provided a brave, fearless criticism of the practice of our party and provided a brilliantly clear and compressed layout of the party's agenda for the next period. End quote. And, and when you think about it, Stalin's in exile. And instead of, you know, getting help of, on, on how to escape from this place or, or how to, how to just get out and what, what to do there, Instead, Lenin writes to him and says, Well, comrade, your party work on, 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 on our great revolution is, is quite okay. But you should do this and this in the future. Just, you know, when you get back, you can do this. It's, it's gonna be fine. And it just kind of struck me. I mean, uh, later on, as, as we know, and we will, we have spoken about the gulags at length. We had a series about them here on the show. And, uh, I simply cannot imagine that anyone <laughs> sitting in Stalin's gulags would, would enjoy this situation. I mean, these these benefits that Stalin is getting are, are crazy, and uh, and yeah, I, I'm pretty sure Stalin actually learned from all this situation because he was personally involved in his own prison system later on, and he learned how to make his prisons inescapable and crazy. He used the Siberian steps as well, but but you can just just feel where he gets his ideas, and that's kind of scary if you think about it a bit. But yeah, after receiving this letter, one of many to come. Stalin got really inspired, because, you know, by, by this point, all up to this point, Stalin had been just a huge communist fanboy who just got active on his own. 
But now, now Stalin has like Stalin has gotten his recognition. So on the fifth of January, Stalin escapes again from his exile, and this time, this time, he is prepared and successful because you just can't keep the man down, really. Of course, he will be in a non-legal status for the following years to come, but not that anyone here should really care by this point, as Koba himself has decided, well, not to. By the way, by the end of his life, Stalin will have been arrested eight times in total, and he will be exiled seven times from those, and he will escape easily in all but the very last case. So yeah, all these escapades of Stalin just leaving... Uh, leaving this Novaya Uda, Novaya Uda for like four times, that all, that all counts as one very successful escape attempt because it just happens in this short span of time. So that's one, not four, mind you. Now, and this is interesting because uh, some, some historians attribute this to Stalin being ridiculously and really very badass, but there are researchers out there who, from this conduct, conclude that he must have had some contacts in the Tsarist police, called Ochranka. Even more, there are theories that he might be a paid secret agent of said police. Now, Alex de Jong, in my, well, single Western book about Stalin and his life, um, called Stalin and the Shaping of the Soviet Union, written in 1986 in London, notes that this idea is quite plausible, but... Not likely, if you think about it really. You see, by this point, Ochranka was the most efficient organization of all the corrupt Imperial Russia. They were the guys who were really doing their job, and they had been in- they had been infiltrating the leadership of like all the major revolutionary organizations and social democratic organizations and everyone who opposed the Tsarist government. Uh, one one of these examples would be. Azev, the leading terrorist of the Socialist Revolutionary Party, and a member of its innermost circle, and he was an Ochrank agent for, like, years. And the Jung notes that Lenin's party was easy to penetrate, and it was much easier to infiltrate it than the opposing Menshevik wing of the Social Democrats. And he attributes this to the fact that Lenin attracted really hard, hard men, mo- most of them uh, for, with a criminal background, already serving in these katorgas and everywhere. And they were like closer, uh, closer to the criminal authorities. And, you know, they were used to, you know, being, as he calls them, stool pigeons, rather than, you know, res- respectable Menshevik intellectuals, because uh, Mensheviks were going like for the bourgeoisie wing of this social democratic stuff. And, unlike the Mensheviks, these Bolsheviks, they really needed money. They were living in the underground, they had basically no way of earning any respectable living, they had to rely on party contributions, and so they were kind of susceptible to Ochranka's agents offering them, you know, hey, have some cash and uh, tell me about the hidden activities that you and your party members are doing. The best known, by the way, Bolshevik double agent was Roman Malinovsky. He actually managed to become a member of the party's central committee. He retained his position for many, many years, largely also because Lenin, at that time, refused to heed any warnings about him. Lenin, by the way, may have been well-suited by an agent who served both masters effectively by ensuring that the Bolshevik and Menshevik factions remained divided, which shall become important in the 1905 revolution. On the point of being shot by revolutionaries in 1917, Malinovsky implored Lenin to kind of revealed, to reveal that he had acted on Lenin's orders and stayed this double agent. But Lenin really didn't care at this point and just threw him, threw him out and just allowed, allowed the firing squad just to shoot Malinovsky. So this idea, so this idea of, of infiltrate, of infiltrating uh, and Stalin being the secret agent is, is kind of interesting here. Because even the Bolshevik leadership in 1917, they will believe that one or more of their number, that, you know, at least some of them, had compromising associations with the Ochranka. And interestingly enough, shortly before he himself died in a gulag, the last chief of Ochranka, General Junkovsky, kind of recalled the zeal with which Bolsheviks destroyed police records. And he noted that, you know, this was far from disinterested. 
Now, obviously, there is nothing implausible about leading Bolsheviks working for the police, but was Stalin a double agent, really? And now, now I'm quoting directly from the junk. <clears throat> a clumsily forged document appearing to confirm the charge led one author, Isaac Don Levine, to explain Stalin's purges as an attempt to cover his tracks. Nevertheless, no evidence has survived to suggest that Stalin was a long-term police informer. And, and here I have to comment, well, obviously, even if Stalin was a police informer, all that evidence would be lost, changed, destroyed, or, you know, <clears throat> gotten rid of in very efficient and nice ways. By the way, surviving we have surviving police records about Stalin's escape at this. Uh, yeah, when Stalin escapes from Novaya Uda, like we just mentioned, the p- police put out the local version of an all-points bulletin. And I quote it here, <clears throat> quote, Circular of the Ministry of Interior, Department of Police, Special Section, May 1, 1904, number 5500. To all city and provincial governors, chiefs of police, chiefs of provincial gendarmes, railroad police and all border posts, the Department of Police has the honor of communicating to you the following terms to be dealt with as appropriate. Number 1. A list of persons wanted by the police. List 1. Persons wanted in connection with political affairs. And there, there he skips some points. Page 20. Number 52. Jugashvili, Yosef Vissarionovich, peasant from the village of Didi Lilo, Tiflis district, Tiflis province, born 1881, orthodox, educated Gori Church School, Tbilisi Theological Seminary, unmarried, father Vissarion, whereabouts unknown, mother Yekaterina, resident Gori, Tbilisi province, Banished for three years to eastern Siberia under open police surveillance for crimes against the state. Residents assigned in Galagan district Irkutsk province disappeared January 5th, 1904. Description. Height. Two arshins, four and a half vershki. Which is uh, five feet, four inches. Average build. Ordinary appearance. Brown hair. Reddish brown mustache and beard. Straight hair. No parting. Dark brown eyes of average size. Ordinary head shape. Uh, I, I wonder how ordinary appearance and ordinary head shape will actually look like. That's a whole different question here. It's, it, these documents are just simply great. <clears throat> Small flat forehead, long straight nose, long swarthy pockmarked face, missing front molar and right lower jaw, shortish height, which they just declared previously. But nobody cares about that. <clears throat> Sharp chin, soft voice, average size ears, Ordinary gait, birthmark on left ear, second and third toes joint on left foot. Just amazing how these details just come out, and they come out in like May when he's when, when he'll be just doing crazy things on May already. We'll get to that. Now, the craziest part is how how the Jong notes <clears throat> is that you know besides mi- mistaking the date and place of Stalin's birth, uh, kind of this document gives uh, quote. A verbose, ill-organized, and unsatisfactory description. However, <clears throat> had Stalin been a police agent, it seems unlikely that a bulletin have been issued at all. Moreover, the document confirms that Stalin had af- had effected a successful escape from Siberia. If he could manage it once, then why not five times more? Which is kind of <laughs> kind of interesting at, at this point to look at all these all these weird situations on and Stalin maybe being a double agent. But this this craziest idea, which which I think uh, validates some merit here, is that you know it's still plausible, and you know it wouldn't it wouldn't be below Stalin to just work with Khranka and then shoot them all, as he will basically deal with his revolutionary comrades later on. He'll just shoot them too, and it uh, will literally cause him no pain, no headaches, or or no no problems of dealing with people here. But yeah, let us let us leave this this one one conspiracy theory away for now. This is just one of the more interesting details. Let's just talk about what he did after escaping. You see, first place where he went after escaping from Siberia was straight back to Batumi. He apparently liked that place very much. As he had all the contacts there and everything, but this thing didn't really go that smoothly for him. One Mr. Arsenidze, who was a party member at the time, but later emigrated, wrote in an article, quote, Memories about Stalin, for the Russian language magazine published in New York, Novi Journal, 
uh, and that one, by the way, is the oldest Russian language literary periodical in print published outside of Russia. They have this uh, cool title, and they've also been nominated for uh, Nobel Prizes and everything. So he writes in this Novi Journal, or the new magazine, in 1963, quote, I first met Stalin in Batumi in 1904. He had just returned from exile and had come straight to us. I saw a young man, dry, bony, with a pale brown pockmarked face and lively, crafty eyes. His opening words dealt with what he perceived as a certain shortcoming of our illegal publications. He disliked their lack of militancy. When their tone was justified as tactically appropriate, this silenced him, though a crafty smile continued to play across his lips. After this, he saw fit to ignore the committee altogether. He devoted all his efforts to restoring direct contact with the workers, among whom, thanks to his earlier activities, he had a number of acquaintances. He spent the better part of a fortnight with them, having secret talks and discussions. As far as I'm aware, the discussions did not reach a satisfactory conclusion, and soon after, Stalin left Batumi. I got the impression that Soso used them to try to gain support for his ambitious plans and approval for his earlier behavior in Batumi, but he found neither even though he had returned expecting them to welcome him with open arms. It is scarcely surprising that he, that he was put out and disappointed by his reception. End quote. Now, there are other sources which basically add to this that Stalin apparently had tried to provoke the workers into direct action, as he was accusing the local committee of cowardice when, you know, they obviously failed to support him. You see, in 1904... The Social Democrats at the Batumi had decided to celebrate the 1st of May somewhat discreetly. They had just planned to hold their annual demonstration or something as usual, but nothing, nothing as, as crazy as Stalin had done before. You know, after causing two prison riots and, you know, getting in a lot of trouble, the Social Democrats just wanted to do things a bit more kind of easier or something. Their demonstration this time would be kind of they would demonstrate by going into sea in rowing boats and, you know, just proceeding some way out. And I have to admit that it's a way, weird way of demonstrating, you know, you take small fishing boats and then you row into the sea and it's kind of weird. <laughs> by the way, and uh, en route to the meeting place, an occupant of Stalin's boat began to tease him. Stalin expressed his displeasure by tipping him into the sea and rowing on. Fortunately, another boat appeared to fish out the humorist, who was not a strong swimmer. But the incident took much of, much of the fun out of May Day. And the, here we're going to go back to some conflicting evidence, but this is one of the sources here which says that Stalin was in Batumi during May Day, but uh, this is where reality shifts happen once again, because some sources uh, of the Russian side will again mention completely different dates, but I want to just comment slightly on uh, on this Batumi incident, on, on the facts that Stalin is just, you know, someone in Stalin's boat is... Well, they're just rowing out in the sea, and I don't know how this is supposed to work, because I presume Stalin must have been, like, terribly pissed off about the idea that what is going on here? Why would Stalin be en be enjoying a a just rowing out in the sea in rowboats? And I'm starting to suspect that maybe there was some, some people from a Haranka involved in the social democratic stuff, but at any rate, even if this happened, and I really much very much doubt it, I just had to mention this, because this comes from, again... Very dubious sources, but uh, imagine this: Stalin just randomly, you know, you row out in the sea, and then Stalin just throws you out of the boat for for just being funny. Stalin's sense of humor was uh, was a bit strange, but yeah. <laughs> so apparently that happened, and I don't, I don't even know. The more I learn about the situation, Stalin just just casually, no, casually, nonchalantly decides to murder people and cause riots, and it's crazy. But yeah, like I said, like I said about this event in May Day, uh, it's complicated because my Russian-speaking sources, again, talk about another weird time shift. Because, because, uh, for now, we know for sure that sometime between January 15 and January 25th, instead of being in Batumi, you know, he went to Batumi, he hung out there, he got thrown out, but then he arrived back in the capital of Georgia, Tbilisi. 
or, you know, Tiflis, as it was called back then, and in some documents. But for consistency's sake, how it was called throughout the Soviet era, I'll just keep calling it Tbilisi, and I'm sorry, my Georgian friends, but I have done so in the previous episodes, and just changing names would be extremely confusing. At any rate, in Tbilisi, he meets a certain Rosenfeld, who will later become much, much more famous with his pseudonym Kamenev. Which, by the way, means the stone one, or man of stone, or stone-like, just like Stalin is man of steel. And uh, Kamenev helps him find a place to live in a strangely documented manner in an, uh, in an apartment of a factory worker named Morochkov. And I'm still a bit confused about how and why these Bolsheviks documented everything, but uh, later on, this proper documentation and accounts of everything are really important. And... While Stalin is at this setting up a place to live phase of his life in late January, in Tbilisi again, in a random meeting in his ex-schoolmate's Michi Bocharidze's house, Stalin will, for the first time, meet uh, Sergei Aluliev, who will later become his father-in-law, and whose memoirs are also one of the main sources of these series, and from where I find this information, which kind of contradicts the fact that Stalin would really be in Mayday in Batumi, which just confused me once again. But just just putting it out here so that you know that Stalin probably could teleport or time travel or something. If every account of Stalin is true, then yeah, he, he probably managed to be in multiple places at once. But yeah, this is all documented. In February 1904, however, we already have some more reliable documents from the party's conventions. See, at this point, Stalin takes on the position that he went, where he was elected in personally, and he becomes the leader of the Caucasus Soviet Committee of the Russian Communistic Party. And, you know, Stalin becomes busy writing the Communist Political Program document, codenamed Credo, which is dedicated to internal party arguments and the organizational tasks for various party members. But again, this is all we know. Because <laughs> uh, time-shifting and, and weird un- uncertainties just prevail throughout these series. See, in the prologue to the first volume of the collected works of Stalin, it is kind of noted that it's was straight up there and these were made in Soviet era. Quote, <clears throat> Up until this point, we haven't found two important Stalin's works. Number one. Program of work in the Marxist working men's circles, written in 19, uh, written in 1889, and Credo, written in 1904, end quote. And you know, it's, it, it's kind of crazy again. Cause I want, I wanted to read this document, but it's just not there. Because Stalin during his reign was basically deified. <laughs> like I and, uh, Stalin himself had said in the previous episodes, he will basically become an idea. But these two writings of his are simply not there. <laughs> and now we in the eastern border have no idea how and why. But if you find them, you can probably become terribly rich. But this leaves something more to all the conspiracy theory fans out there now, doesn't it? I mean, conspiracy theories about Stalin are also so wide and widespread and numerous that I'll probably dedicate a whole episode to them at some point in the future. But firstly, we, we kind of have to get through much of much of this era. Anyhow, during March and April, Stalin gets a bit ill and decides to visit his mother in his birthplace of Gori. It's just what he does. He visits his mom, probably notices that his dad has gone missing, or dead or something. But yeah, this is what he does. Um, and Russian sources don't mention anything about May, but I, I presume that he will also stay in, in, he stayed either in Gori in May with his mother, or went to Batumi and participated in this May social demo, social democrat organized mar, social democrat organized protest with boats in Batumi and almost killed his fellow comrade for making silly jokes. What a nice fun man to hang out with. Great revolutionary leader comrades, simply great. In June, Stalin will arrive in Baku, where, under this authority of the Caucasus Soviet Committee, he will fire the local Menshevik Committee and create a new Bolshevik one. The weirdest part is that, again, we have sources which, who, which state that instead of arriving in Baku under the authority of this committee, he just had to leave Tbilisi because 
Quote, his squabbles and intrigues had made too many enemies. Once he even came to blows with Filip Makaradze, Bolshevik moderate. There is hearsay evidence of a second party court that banished him from Tbilisi again. End quote. But yeah, you may never know, because, again, poor documentation and shabby sources. But yeah, he just, you know, at any rate, he arrives in Baku and throws out old Menshevik committee, apparently from the from the new committee. And he will write some articles in the newspaper Battle of the Proletariat. And in these articles there, he criticizes the Menshevik leader, leaders harshly and dedicates much of his writing to propaganda of the necessity of an armed and violent uprising. Stalin will dedicate a lot of time at this period to, to armed violent uprisings because that seemed to be a hobby of his. Once he'll be, he'll be just done with that, uh, he will move on once again. And at the end of July 1904, Stalin will arrive, hey, guess where, in Kutaisi, again as the representative of his committee, to again reorganize the local regional committee. And yeah, Kutaisi is the place where he was sent from Batumi to his prison. And that's just fun, he just arrives there, because and while being searched for, as we noticed that in May 1904, uh, the, his sort of warrant has been issued all around Russia. According to reports, as a result of this situation where he just goes and reorganizes the local regional committee of this district, <clears throat> quote, revolutionary work in the local villages was severely improved and all the governorship of Kutais was covered in illegal revolutionary organizations, end quote. And while he was there, he also opens another illegal typography, his other hobby, which at this point was located in the home of one Vaso Gogiladze and apparently operated there until the February of 1906. Again, I sometimes have to wonder how pedantic were these guys about documenting all this stuff. But this will this will play in further on, like I said in the KGB, because for some reason... You know, Nazis just shot people. Nazis didn't care about the proper documentation, but for KGB, they had to beat out a confession from you. They had to... They, they really cared about this legalese. And this is kind of this... In, in the roots, this imminent, immense bureaucracy is just at the root of the Communist Party, because everything, need, everything needs a huge paper trail with it, for some reason. It's kind of crazy, but everything needs to be accounted for, and you need to sign a paper that you're actually guilty, even though it comes after harsh beatings and torments and everything, but they, they just noted down stuff. And that's great for us historians, unless most of these documents wouldn't contradict each other. Like in this this wonderful case. At any rate, with these travels and positions of power, this is where his self-adopted nickname of Koba gains some real traction, as others start calling him that by this point, not just himself, as we noted previously when he escaped from, from his prison and went back to Batumi, uh, the eyewitness still calls him Soso. But from now on, from now on, he shall be called Koba by everyone. Also, during September, Stalin will ride around this this province of Kutais and its various villages, and he will just spawn Bolshevik organizations everywhere. And of course, he will be writing letters to his patriots back in Georgia, and in these letters, he still calls for armed violent uprisings. I don't know, <laughs> armed violent uprising seems to be, you know, Uncle Koba's favorite favorite term ever. He will return back to Tbilisi in late October where he will once again take up his bureaucratic position as the leader of this general committee of Caucasus. And that's kind of weird, because if Stalin was thrown out from Tbilisi, then why would he come back and be the leader once again? <sighs> Everything is very, very strange. <laughs> but still, Stalin's knowledge of bureaucracy shall play a humongous major role in this story later on in further episodes, so note it down. Stalin is massively adept at this bureaucratic bureaucratic regime and bureaucratic everything, really. So, in the 29th of November, 1904, another key event happened. In the carpentry shop of certain M. Chordishvili, a party conference of the Caucasus Soviet Committee of the Communist Party happens. With our pal Koba in charge of these poor souls, many of whom will not survive either revolution or the civil war or their own buddy Stalin right there, uh, these guys decide that it's time to start preparing for the third congress of the Russian Communist Party in Moscow. 
Stalin is once again sent away to Baku. And yeah, it all is sort of weird, so maybe he was in trouble with them, maybe he wasn't. And uh, I, I'm just trying to find explanations why Stalin would later just shoot, shoot or arrest or uh, kill most of these fellows. So I have to assume that he probably did have some conflicts with them. Uh, but technically, the, the nominal term is that Baku is a bit safer location to prepare for this. And in the beginning of December, it is. But obviously, this is Stalin we're talking about here. And he immediately starts causing trouble in Baku as well. <laughs> after thrown, after thrown, after he had thrown out, uh, the Menshevik committee of Baku and set up his own, he just goes to Baku and does terrible, crazy stuff as usual. And by the way, as another lucky find on all this situation, here is a young party member from Baku, one F. Hunyans, recalling her meeting with Stalin there. Quote, I found Koba in a small room. He was short, thin, and somewhat dejected looking, reminding me of a petty thief awaiting sentencing. He wore a dark blue peasant blouse, tight-fitting jacket, and a black Turkish cap. He treated me suspiciously. After lengthy questioning, he handed me a stack of illegal literature. I had my own copies of some of them, so I only took some of the ones he offered. He saw me to the door with that same guarded, mistrustful expression. And then later on in the quote, she confesses to Stefan Shaumyan, a leading Bolshevik, that Stalin made a bad impression on her as an intimidating and depressing person. And she asks him, Is he like that with everybody? What are you talking about? He's an old comrade, very committed, very experienced, Shaumyan assured me. And then she later goes on to describe Stalin's behavior at local committee meetings. <clears throat> it would be time to start, and Koba would not be there. He always arrived late. Not very, but it never failed. When he got there, the atmosphere would change. It was not so much that it became businesslike as strained. Koba would arrive with a book under his shortened left arm and sit somewhere to the side or in a corner. He would listen in silence until everyone had spoken. He always spoke last. Taking his time, he could compare the different views, weight all the arguments, and, basing himself upon the most practical and far-sighted position, make his quote-unquote own motion with great finality, as though concluding the discussion. Thus, there was a sense of special importance to everything he said. And it's kind of weird, because this, this again is an interesting view of Stalin in, in action, really. And this is, this is where he kind of exploits the format of a meeting in order to basically dominate it. And he does it and ignores every other opinion in the room. Much like, you know, Lenin was an orator. Lenin spoke loudly and spoke first, and he just hated anyone opposing him. Stalin got around this by just speaking lost, being silent, and just, you know, having this threatened atmosphere around him. Here Stalin kind of shows an ability that he can summarize things, that he's a cunning, sly man. But he's not particularly interesting, interested in, in many, many, many kind of long speeches. Then again, you can clearly see that these are the characteristics which will, would eventually turn him into the manager of and committee chairman and, and this kind of leader of, of Soviet Union. This is, this is where you can see the, the future Stalin here. And this is important because, like I said, he starts causing trouble in Baku. At any rate, on the 5th of December of 1904, some of the workers from just a few oil production companies in the region decided to go on a strike. On the 9th, the Communist Party, this committee, organizes an illegal protest where Stalin, by the way, is participating personally while risking being arrested, because he doesn't care about that by this point, I think. This protest is continued by another one, also organized by the Communist Committee on the 12th of December 1904, where a decision among workers is made and they have this public declaration, quote, <clears throat> on the support of the existing strike and turning it into a general one. And Stalin seems to be happy with this idea. So, under his leadership, with the aid of the local party member Japaridze, Again, probably going to be deceased in future episodes. I'm just making assumptions here, but they're 90% true. They really turned this into a general strike of every oil production worker of the region of Baku, and Baku, by this point, are the oil fields of Russia. So, this general strike will be settled in the 31st of December, with the very first in the history of the working peoples of Russia collective deal between the workers and the industrialists. 
This, by the way, shall be the prelude of what's to come in the next episode. The Revolution of 1905, that is. This time, from Stalin's point of view, and much uglier than last time when I mentioned this in the Line series. Because this successful general strike served as a massive inspiration of many, many similar strikes all around Russia in the next few months. But that's for the next episode, as, like I said, 1905 is way, way too important. Before we go, though, while this is happening, in the 20th of December, 1904, Lenin will write a letter to the Caucasus Soviet Committee. He will ask Stalin for a chance to participate in their newspaper, The Battle of the Proletariat. For which, mind you, Lenin gives a very high praise, noting its strict Marxism and literal equalities. And that's something new for our old pal Lenin here, knowing that he loved his own writings more than anything else. The newspaper shall play a huge role in the upcoming First Russian Revolution, but like I said, more about that next time. Uh, here I would like to note that, yeah, Stalin is really successful at getting his demands met somehow. Like, he organizes th- these prison riots and this Baku and everything, and uh, as weird as it may seem, Stalin is really, really great at being a professional revolutionary. But, I do have to say that <laughs> this is not all for this episode. No, no, no. You see, like I mentioned in the last episode, our anniversary one, I have acquired access to simply gargantuan amounts of various magazines, and I believe that it's time to use them. So this time, in our new ending of episode series, just short stuff, short cultural stuff about Stalin, which I'll, uh, which I'll post at the end of our historical episodes, and I'll call them Ask Uncle Joe for more comedy, uh, I will read you in this, this time, I will read you Stalin's short speech of the 19th Congress of the Communist Party, as it was published in the newspaper Zweigsne, or The Star, in 15th of October 1952. Because in some episodes, Uncle Joe and terrible journalism provide for much more fun and entertainment than any political jokes. Uh, they'll be in, they'll be in plenty of supply later on, but, you know, you have to save up some, some fun good stuff for these episodes too, as they will get progressively darker and darker. But this is for this time. <laughs> Honestly, after digging through newspapers and collected works of Stalin, I have understood that if you'd literally send me your question about, well, anything, I'm pretty sure that I can find you an answer to it, with a very real Stalin quote. Or or maybe Lenin's, or, or some of their contemporaries, but Stalin took over where Lenin started and really expanded with the idea of spamming useless articles and speeches about literally everything. I'm not even sure he wrote most of these, because uh, he had a whole army of bureaucrats under him, but you can probably send your question in into in Ask Uncle Joe segment, and yeah... <laughs> Get an answer. So really, feel free, feel free to send in your questions, comrades, and Uncle Joe will answer them, and I'll read those together with the funniest answers that I can find in future episodes. But now, before I'll start, there's something that should that you should know, because this is going to be very important in the reading of this this uh, speech. Namely, at all the times when I interrupt the speech with "and everybody applauds" quote or something, that's literally printed in the newspaper that way, in bold. And very center, because uh, at this point it was very common for all the printings of the speeches to just print out random yells from the audience and all the applause and everything. And that will quite probably provide most of the hilarious stuff in this speech, and I hope you really enjoy this. But that uh, <laughs> that will happen right after the break, because we, we need to have some... A-, a lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Allison as well. Hi, this is Alice. We would like to say hello and welcome to our newest patrons, John, 
Kai, Leonard, Zendog, James, Yanis, and Gabriel. Thank you so much. This month's Dark Myths featured show is Strange Matters. We made our episode 11 with them about supernatural stuff in Chernobyl, had their plug in the beginning, so go check them out. We're also planning on an episode about Baba Vanga, the Bulgarian prophetess that was left alone by KGB and sometimes even consulted. Also, there's another podcast that we found out about, and we just want to tell you all about it. It's called Ear Hustle, and it's a special show as it is run by inmates of St. Quentin Prison. They only have two episodes so far, and the first one was about what it's like to live in a cell, how a cellmate means a lot, but the second one took a darker twist and left an impact on Christophs, as it was about how prison can change a person. It's not an easy listen, but it's certainly interesting. So give Ear Hustle a listen, even though it might not be for everyone. And lastly, thank you all for listening to us. If you ever have any questions, you can write us up on our social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, you can write us to our email, theeasternborder at gmail.com. Also, send in your questions for Ask Uncle Joe. If you want to support us, you can become a patron or support us through PayPal. We also have mugs and t-shirts if you ever want to buy one of those. Thank you for listening. And now back to the show. The speech of Comrade Yosef Vissarionovich Stalin in the in the Lenin-Stalin Party's 19th Congress. And here's the first thing. <clears throat> uh, as Stalin appears to, ha- to give a speech, the delegates uh, just uh, start standing up and giving long applause, which turn into ovations. There are yells in the, in the room. Hooray for Comrade Stalin! Long live Comrade Stalin! Greatness and glory to the great Stalin! Yes, I know, it makes no sense, but this is how it is. <clears throat> So, he speaks. Comrades, allow me in the name of our Congress say thank you to all the brotherly parties and groups whose representatives have honored our Congress with them being there, or who have sent to Congress the greetings. We are for friendly greetings, for good wishes, and for loyalty. <clears throat> then, then another one. <clears throat> Storm-like long applauses which turn into more ovations. For us, uh, especially important is this loyalty, which means readiness to support our party in its battle for the bright, bright future of all the nations. In her battles against war, in her battles for saving the peace. <clears throat> Storm-like long applause. It would be wrong to think that our party, which has become a mighty force, does not need support anymore. It is wrong. For our party and our country, uh, it was always necessary and will be necessary the loyalty and trust of the brotherly foreign peoples, sympathies and support of those peoples. The peculiarities of this support is that any brotherly party's support for our party's peaceful attempts, with that basically means that they are supporting their own people and their struggles of keeping the peace. When British workers in the 1918 and 1919, in the time when English bourgeoisie created an armed attack on the Soviet Union, organized battle against war with with their motto, Hands Off of Russia, that was the support, first and foremost, the support for their own people for the struggle for peace, but after that also support for the Soviet Union. When Comrade Torres or Comrade Tolyati says that their battles, will, that their nations will not fight against the Soviet nation unions, uh, storm-like uh, crazy applause, then this is the support, first and foremost, to the French and Italian workers and peasants who fight for peace, but after that, support for Soviet Union's peaceful attempts. Attempts of what is not explained, it doesn't matter really. <clears throat> This uh, support, this support that we give each other, is is kind of you know the peculiarities of this is is being explained with the fact that the interests of our party are not contradicting theirs, but instead our the interests of our party are the interests of all of those peoples. Storm-like applause. And what what is special about the Soviet Union 
that the, the, the our interests, the interests of the Soviet Union, they cannot be separated for the, from the interests of peace throughout the whole world. It is only it is only normal and understandable that our party simply cannot stay cannot stay indebted to our brotherly parties, and that it itself must in turn support them and their their nations in the struggle for freedom, in the struggle for for keeping the peace. And as it's known, our party does exactly that. Stormlike applause. And here's a comment from me. Yeah, this is how he supports all the nice invasions, everything. <clears throat> Carrying on. After that, after that, when our party in the in the 1917 took over the power, and after that, when our party our party did real things to eliminate the yoke of capitalists and bourgeoisie, the representatives of the brotherly parties were just so jubilant about the bravery of our party and success, and named it. Uh, named it the Stormtroopers of the World Revolutionary and Workers' Movement. With this, they stated their hopes that the Stormtrooper success will make the w- make the status of those nations easier, the status of those nations who are mm, who are being choked under the yoke of the capitalism. I think that our party has justified these hopes, especially during the period of Second World War, where the Soviet Union destroy while destroying. The German and, and Japanese fascistic tyrants saved Euro- saved the peoples of Europe and Asia from the from the threats of the fascistic slavery. Uh, Storm-like applause once again. They're like in every paragraph. Don't don't get any mistakes here. <clears throat> of course, it was very hard to fulfill this honorful honorful role while the stormtroopers were just just a single unit, a single party. And while while we almost alone had to do this first first row roll, but this time has passed. Now there's a completely different situation. Now, when from China and Korea up to Czechoslovakia and Hungary, new stormtrooper squads have been created in the period of the People's Democratic Countries. Now our party has easier time to fight, and it's and it's better time for work as well. Long storm-like applause. A special attention must be paid to the fact that these communistic, democratic, or star, or workers and peasants parties, who's, who haven't yet acquired power and are still working under the heel of the, of the draconic bourgeoisie clause, they are, they are working harder and, you know, it's hard for them. But it is not as difficult to work under this terrible evil heel as it was for us Russian communists during the time of Tsarism, when even the smallest movement forward was declared as the harshest crime. But the Russian communists managed to pull through, they weren't afraid and they conquered, they achieved victory. The same thing shall happen to these parties. Now, a question must be asked. Why do these parties have it, have it easier, unlike us, during the time of Russian communism during Tsarism? First and foremost, because in front of their eyes they have such successes in fights, in fights, and and everything else like we have in the Soviet Union and other nations of people's democracy. Thus, they can learn from the mistakes and successes of these people, making their work easier. Secondly, because the bourgeoisie itself. The main enemy of the liberation movement. It has become different. It has changed a lot. It has become more reactionary, lost its ties to the people, and thus has weakened itself. It can be understood that this situation really makes the job of creating revolutions abroad much, much easier. Another round of storm-like, crazy, insane applause. In earlier times, bourgeoisie was more liberal, defended the liberties of bourgeoisie democracy, and created thus a popularity in its peoples. Now there is no smell left of liberalism. There is no more so-called personal freedom. The person's freedoms are only for those who own some capital, but everyone else is considered considered basically <clears throat> human petrol, human fuel, Everyone else are meant just for exploitation only. 
And if you think about it, again, this speech gives you such a huge food for thought about uh, today's political situations, but I'm just not going to get into this. I'm just going to continue on. <clears throat> the principle of human and nation equality has been stomped underfoot. It has been replaced with exploitationary rights of the minority and the, and the, the ones who are being exploited, the majority of the people, they have been turned into people without any rights whatsoever. Do you understand me, guys, in the United States in the 50s? You had no rights, obviously. <clears throat> Great. The, the flag of the bourgeois, of the, of the democratic values of the bourgeoisie has been thrown overboard. I think this flag deserves to be picked up, and it shall be done by you, communist and democratic parties, representatives of these parties, and you shall have to carry it forward if you want to gather the majority of the people around you. There is no one else who could raise this flag. Again, storm-like crazy applause. Earlier, bourgeoisie was the head of the nation. It defended the nation's rights of independence. They were presenting them higher than anything else. Now there's nothing left from the national principle. Now, bourgeoisie sell out, now the bourgeoisie of the nations sell out their rights for dollars. National independence and national sovereignty flag has been thrown overboard. Again, I have to remind you that this flag shall be taken up by you, communist parties, and representatives of these parties, and you will have to carry on this flag forward if you want to become the main force of the majority of your peoples. Again, I have to say there is no one else who can pick this flag up. Stormlike applause. This is the situation now. It is understandable that, you know, all of these, that all of these uh, conditions have to make the work easier for the communistic and democratic parties who haven't come yet to power. And we shall help them with everything in our, uh, everything that we can. Now, there is complete, complete and total basis on, on hoping that our brotherly parties shall succeed and overthrow their yoke and they shall succeed, succeed, they shall achieve victory in the lands of the capitalist tyranny. Another round of storm-like applause. Long live to our brotherly parties. Long applause. Long health and good, good health and long, long life to the leaders of our brotherly parties. Another round of long applause. Long live peace among nations. Long applause. Death to those who praise war. <clears throat> and this is the end of the speech. Everyone stands up. Storm-like, long, unending applause, which turns into ovations. Yells, long live to Comrade Stalin. Hooray for Comrade Stalin. Long live to the great hero of all the working peoples of the world, Comrade Stalin. Again, Comrade Stalin, hooray. Long live to peace among nations and Comrade Stalin. Hooray, hooray! Glory to Stalin! Uncle Joe really knows how to raise a crowd, doesn't he? But yeah, think about it. By this point, if if a country kind of... Even Stalin thought at this point that uh, if you start to lose the liberal values of the bourgeoisie, which basically keeps every democracy in check, then uh, radical communism can appear. And I will I will afford myself some slight commentary about radicalism, both right-wing and left-wing, because neo-Nazis and these so-called anti-fa are one and the same to me. If you lose liberal values and values of freedom of speech and everything, then you're bound to make job and life easier for radicalists. And hey, a lot of people these days are just yelling about the fact that, hey, um, this is totally not true, we need stricter things. But Comrade Joe, Uncle Joe knew what he was speaking about. Less liberal you become, the easier it is for communists or fascists to take power. Advice from Uncle Joe! At any rate, let's end on this very cheerful note and see you next time. Do svidaniya, tavarish. Thank you for listening to The Eastern Border. If you have any comments or specific details you'd like to know, you're welcome to leave it in the comment section on our site, theeasternborder.lv, and we'll rummage even to the western border to find you an answer. Like this podcast? Subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or on our RSS feed. Happiness is mandatory. Good reviews and donations feed the farmers of our kolkhoz in the great motherland. 
the eastern border salutes you. This podcast is part of the Dark Myths Collective. Visit darkmyths.org for more shows like this one. The darkness awaits. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.